Amen. Well, good morning. If you are, uh, if you've had children through grade five, you can have them dismissed downstairs to Children's Church if you'd like them to, or you're welcome to keep them up here with you. We love kids, and we love for them to be with you in service, so if you'd like to keep them here, feel free to do that. For the rest of you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Laura's not in here, so I can say this and not immediately get in trouble with a look. Today's her birthday. She's officially 39 today, and... Uh, I would imagine we're holding there for any length of time. I'm not sure how long that'll be. Ladies, you know that, how that works. Anyway, so you can wish her a happy birthday if you'd like. So it's good to be with you and back in our study, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's uh, enjoy our time together in the Word. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. And we'll read through 50 through 58, the last of this chapter. We've titled this, affectionately the resurrection triumph the entire chapter has been about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection on everything and so here it is our final victory these last eight verses perhaps nine verses rather you've seen uh, and heard these read at funerals these are very important verses very condensed very uh, with all kinds of information here that is just so vital i think for our walk with the lord i think i hope that you come away today encouraged equipped uh, to further walk in confidence in, in your relationship with the Lord. So let's look at verse 50, if you would. If this is the first time you've been in the Word this week, you're starving this morning. You don't realize it spiritually, but you are. And just as if you had missed a whole bunch of meals during the week and regular physical meals. So make sure you're in the Word each day. It's how the Lord designed for it to be read, uh, to be part of your life, letting it dwell in your life richly with all wisdom. If you need help doing that on a day-to-day -day basis, we do have a uh, calendar out on the foyer there at the welcome table together in the word you'll find many brilliant people use that as their guide to read through the word and so that can help you read day by day as you open up really the word of God and get to know him more uh, more intimately get to know more about his plan how he has worked in the past how he continues to work now his faithful promises plus it acquaints you with all the passages you're going to need to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you and so let me encourage you as I often do, for you to be in the Word every single day. Look at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we, shall, but we will be all changed in a moment. Verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality, verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Stop right there. In his first speech as prime minister to the House of Commons, May 13, 1940, Winston Churchill is recorded as saying this, quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, and tears, and sweat. We have before us 
an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might, with all our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what's our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long, hard the road may be. End quote. And history shows us how great the cost of that victory truly was. Eisenhower was noted as saying about the war, there is no victory at bargain basement prices. And so it proved to be. I think you can see the connection to our passage. Of course, Christ has won this tremendous battle over sin and death. But I wonder what would have been the attitudes of Churchill and Eisenhower if they could have known in advance the final outcome of World War II. Would it have changed the way their decisions were made? It certainly could have taken away the worry and the anxious thoughts and, and all of those things from their mind. I mean, Eisenhower's letter to the troops spoke of full confidence right before the D-Day invasion. He said, in part, in company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazis' tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. I have full confidence, Eisenhower said to the troops, in your courage, devotion to duty, your skill in battle, we will accept nothing less than full victory. And yet secretly, as you know, he had penned a defeat letter as well to the troops where he said, our decisions were based at this time on the best information available, the troops, the air, the Navy did all that bravery had devotion could do. Any blame or fault attached to the attempt is mine and we have withdrawn our troops from the invasion. And so there's a secret letter that he wrote just in case it didn't work out. And I kind of imagine how much he lived with the uncertainty, with the worry, enormous task before them, an enormous uh, uh, hardened enemy, uh, which really pales into insignificance as we think about Christ's battle against sin, against the sin of mankind, one, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, but Christ came as a second Adam and defeated all the sin of all mankind. His battle was much greater. And so last week, we began to look at this last section of chapter 15, which deals with the resurrection triumph and the final victory. And I would say to you, as perhaps opposed to what we understand about World War II, that this is the definitive word on the subject, and we know the outcome in advance. And you're, you're waging war against sin in your flesh, of course. Paul says most of us have not waged war to the point of this shedding of blood. And yet it's a real battle, right? And we throw our hats in the ring with people who are believers, and yet the, the flesh longs for its appetites, and the, the world offers all of its attractions, and it's a regular battle. But Christ has gone ahead and won the battle in advance, and we know that, see? And so there isn't a second letter penned by Paul, just in case of defeat, where it says, you know, Paul would say, you know, in case um, the resurrection wasn't enough, prepare yourself in advance, perhaps for a, an alternative eternity, which is one that won't show victory, won't show resurrection for yourself. We don't see that with Paul. Why? Because the victory was sure and complete, and Paul could write with all confidence, with no reserve, as Eisenhower did, writing a, penning a letter after his letter to the troops, taking the blame and apologizing for the loss of life and all of that and the defeat. So after laying all the groundwork for the last nine, these last nine verses and why this victory is sure, then Paul is carried along 
by the Holy Spirit to say in verse 50. Look there if you would with me. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And Paul says, now this I say. In other words, uh, I affirm this to you. This is for sure. I want you to draw your attention to this. And it just draws attention to this very important principle. God wants you to know some things about your future resurrection. So in verse 50, he begins here with some very important facts, and we'll have some uh, principles that we'll work through, and you'll find those in your notes if that's helpful to you right on the back of your bulletin. So the Holy Spirit starts with this. Principle number one, we saw this last time. We finished up right here. We're going to be transformed. Just a very simple, you're going to be transformed. Everyone is. We know that everyone who's ever lived will rise. The resurrection of the, the damned, the resurrection of those who are forever with the Lord. But here Paul is addressing, addressing believers in those last nine verses. And so he just says, listen, you're going to be transformed. Believers cannot get there. You cannot get there. I cannot if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. We cannot get there in this body. We've got to have, a diff- we have to be different to dwell in that domain. And then he says this, flesh and blood. And that's just a way to refer to the physical body here and now. These are obviously connected with decay. And these are the most obvious referrals to a mortal body. So Paul mentions them and he says, uh, we won't be earthly like Adam, as he's been talking about in the previous verses. We'll be heavenly like Christ. And in, like in verse 49, he says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, remember, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And so he's just talking about being human. And then he says, uh, being human in this sense keeps you from being able to what? Have an inheritance, inherit the kingdom of God. And so it's very important that we understand there's going to be a difference. Uh, you can inherit the kingdom of God in the body that you're in. And the idea of the kingdom of God here is not the kingdom of God in its universal sense, the whole universe, the rule of God. It's not that. It's not uh, the kingdom of God reigning in the heart. It's not that because you certainly inherited that. You received that kingdom implanted in your heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is the kingdom that's coming. It's the kingdom that Christ is going to set the stage for. It's the final state when Christ has subjected everything and he's abolished all rule. He's abolished all authority. He has thrown down every enemy of Christ under his feet and he hands over the kingdom to God and and that is your inheritance. You have an inheritance in the kingdom, the eternal state. So deliver to the Father, reserved for all who believe. And believers can't get into that kingdom without a transformation. And he just confirms this classification of what we have now when he says in verse 50, he says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In verse 42 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, so also uh, is the resurrection of the dead. It's so imperishable, it's raised imperishable. So just Continuing theme, listen, you can't get there from here like you are. And so the words perishable and imperishable and the combination of flesh and blood just simply mean that, uh, indicate that neither the living uh, nor the dead at the coming of Christ will go into the kingdom as they are. They both must be transformed and your transformed body, and this is important, although we don't really know what it will entail, it will not include flesh and blood as we know it now. So something else in its place, certainly a body, But Paul says, verse 51, look there if you would. We're just going verse by verse as we always do. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. And this is marvelous, okay? So Paul just opens up this whole new thing. And it's common to you, I think, because you understand this. But for Paul's readers, this was something that had been hidden, but now has been made clear. And again, Paul calls attention to what he's about to reveal when he says, behold. He says, look, I need you to understand this. This is a mystery. This is something that was hidden and is now being revealed. So, Paul says, take a look at this. Remember back in verses 42 and 43, we just read it a minute ago. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable one. 
It's sown in dishonor. So all the things that you do that dishonor the Lord, that don't live up to your potential, all that, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. We can't even overcome the length of, our length of days. We can't overcome uh, some sicknesses. We can't overcome the loss of our hair. We can't, uh, we can't overcome any of that. It's part of the weakness of the fleshly body. It's raised in power. So all that just showing in, in that distinction between the two, what it was before, what it is now. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. As sure as you're sitting here now, there will be a spiritual body, Paul says. So it's a spiritual body, not just a spirit. So a tremendous transformation then has to take place. And we have Paul compare the mechanics and the form of the resurrection to the planting of a seed. And we saw this a number of months ago. Like the seed goes into the ground. So when you die, as it were, you go into the ground and out of the, out of the breakdown and out of the corruption uh, that the seed goes through. And you, if, you're a, if you're a farmer, if you've had a garden, you understand that. If you plant a seed and you've got little kids and it's been in the ground maybe about a week or maybe two weeks. And then they're like digging it up. All right, and it's all broken down, it's a mess, and there's stuff going, you know, it's got some feeders going out, but it's, it's not what it needs to be, right? It's starting to break down, decay, uh, maybe has some mold on it, all that kind of stuff. And so, listen, out of all of that, see, as Paul uses this as an example, as seed goes in the ground, it breaks down, and then out of that, the earthly body springs into a new body coming out of the grave, just like the seed comes out of the ground, and, and this is glorious new thing. And Paul used that as an illustration. And that's what everyone understands up until this point to be the resurrection, and that's true. It is the resurrection of the dead. But Paul says, here's a mystery, beloved. And he's revealing this, and this is our resurrection triumph uh, principle number two. Not everyone is going to die before they're transformed. So Paul says, listen, everybody's going to be transformed, and you have to be transformed to get there, and it's not going to include flesh and blood as we know it, but here's a mystery that I want you to make sure you understand, and here it is. Not everybody's going to die before they're transformed. And of course, now that there's this option... Everybody wants that one, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. You don't really want to die, right? I mean, I don't even really like taking naps that much because I'll miss stuff, right? Stuff goes on and you're like sleeping or whatever. So like in church, you know, you, stuff goes on and you're snoozing, all right? So I don't even like taking naps. So the thing about it is everybody wants this option, right? Okay, I don't have to die. I, you know, I have to go through all the whatever I have to go through, you know, to die. You know, I, like somebody said, I, you know, when I die, I'd rather not be there or whatever. You know, you, you don't want to be a part of that. So, but Paul says, listen, some people aren't going to die. They're going to be transformed but not die. So Paul says, look, I show you a mystery. And here he says this, we will not all sleep. And that's euphemistic for dying. We've seen that over and over again. Paul includes himself in the group with we. But when he says we, he means we believers. Okay, so he's just including everybody. And, and here's how we have to understand it. Christians alive at that day. We will not all sleep. Paul's alive right at that point. You know, if Christ came back at that point, Paul would be transformed from his physical body. So Paul says, we will not all sleep. He's just speaking of Christians alive at that day. We know Paul's long dead in the grave, and his, uh, he is alive with Christ to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But Paul says, some will not die. So he's answering this question that comes up as we think this through. Obviously, Christ is going to wrap up everything and hand over the kingdom. And at that point, there's going to be lots of believers alive still, right? I mean, it's just obvious. If you just think through the logistics. There's going to be millions and millions of people still alive who trust Christ. And so he's got to deal with this issue. So what happens to the Christians who don't go into the ground? Okay, he says, we'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So they're going to be, what? Transformed too. That's because there's no way to dwell in the incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God in a mortal, in a mortal corruptible body. So according to Paul, some of us will go into the ground and be changed at the moment we come out of the grave, and some of us will be changed on the way up. Now, 
And the point Paul's making here is that whatever group we're with, whether we're among that number or whether we die before that day, we'll all be changed. So not to worry. This body's not going to be destroyed or abandoned. It's going to be transformed. And as we said before, there is your identity wrapped up in that. Okay, this body that you have, although it won't have flesh and blood as we know it, is still going to have your identity. It's going to be wrapped around your identity, and people are going to recognize you and all that. We, we dealt with all of that already. And I think as a footnote, as we think through this, it's important to, to remember that this really teaches balancing Paul's assurances to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Think about 4.13, rather. Think about that teaching. Paul says this, and just think about who he's addressing now in comparison to what we just read. In 1 Corinthians 4.13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. So much the same type of language. In other words, you may not know this, and I'm going to tell you this. Okay, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So who's he dealing with now? The first question in 1 Corinthians 15.51 is, what about the people who are alive when Christ comes? Now, what's he dealing with in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? What about the people who are dead? Okay, what about when Christ comes and you're already dead? Do you miss this? Okay, so... I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, so I'm going to reveal something to you that you may not know about those who are asleep so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And again, it's just using different words, revealing new information to the church. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So it, now we even get an order. So if you're dead when Christ comes back to catch the church away, you get to go first. See? So don't worry about those who have fallen asleep. They're going to go first. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, um, everybody's going to be changed. Don't worry about if you're still alive. Because he just got through saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So people are going, well, what if I'm alive when Christ comes back? What happens to me then? Well, you're going to be changed. We'll not all sleep, but we're going to be changed. And Paul says, and if you are asleep you're going to be changed, and you get to go first. Those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So here, Paul assures his readers that those who die before Christ comes will be at no disadvantage to those who are alive when Christ comes. Because they'll rise, and as we've seen in our passage this morning, be transformed first. So 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul addresses the living, and they see Paul's words, you know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, and they could wonder, so how are we who are alive going to come and enter into the kingdom? What happens to us? And so Paul assures both in the church that there is unity and uniformity and identity for all who are in Christ at his coming, regardless of whether they're in the grave or still living. He's taking care of both. Now, Paul tells them a whole new thing they didn't know before, and that's pretty exciting, and I think it's still exciting now if we think about the whole implication of all of this to you and I, who live really in the last of the last days, if we look at, uh, uh, at, at Bible future. We live in the last of the last days, so it's likely that some who sit here, possible for sure, uh, that some who sit here could not taste death and might go straight to into the kingdom transformed. So, Pretty cool stuff. And, and we teach that 1 Thessalonians is speaking of the catching away of those who are, who are Christ called the rapture. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 helps to support that very unique and important New Testament passage. 
there will be a rapture, and there are good illustrations of that in the lives of Enoch and Elijah. As we see, they just, you know, walked right up to heaven and were called to heaven, obviously changed on the way up for the exact same reason that you and I have to be changed on the way up, that flesh and blood do not inherit that kingdom. And so Elijah, Enoch, obviously changed on the way up, and there are many examples of Jesus calling people from decay back to life on the earth uh, so they didn't have to be changed, Lazarus being one of those many. And so we understand there's examples of both in, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, so they're kind of introductory examples, if you would, Elijah, Enoch, uh, Lazarus and many others, and, and these believers are not being transformed out of the grave to judgment. They are being transformed out of the grave and transformed from walking around in life to being with the Lord. And they're part of this first resurrection, therefore to the catching away of the church, it's part of that mystery of transformation that has now been, Paul says, revealed to you. And then verse 52 helps us with that understanding, so look there if you would. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. And here's transformation principle number three. The transformation from corruptible to incorruptible is instant. So the change is not going to be a long, drawn-out affair. And if you think about the example Paul gave about the seed going in the ground, we think in terms of, of a germination, don't we? You're going to put it in the ground, and then 30 days later or 60 days later, it's going to come up out of the ground. But Paul says, in some respects, the illustration is accurate. What you were before that got planted in the ground is nothing to what this beautiful thing is going to come out of the ground. And so that is where the illustration holds true. But where it doesn't hold true is here where Paul says, listen, at, at a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and will be changed. So the change will not be a long, drawn-out affair. The resurrection of the dead might be likened to the planting of the seed, but unlike a seed where the germination can take a long time, the transformation of the living and the dead will only take a moment. And that's that word atomos, which is where we get our word atom. And its intent is to communicate an indivisible amount of time. So Paul's not kidding here, just saying, hey, it's, you know, a moment could be, you know, a week, a moment could be, you know, 10 days. A moment is this very small amount of time, like our use of the word to communicate the smallest constituent of, of ordinary matter. Paul uses the word here to just get the time down to an indivisible amount of time. So the Holy Spirit's desire here is to indicate that the transformation of Adam's race into Christ-likeness will take a lot less time than the original forming of Adam from the earth. So just think about that. You know, God reached down, he used earth, he formed Adam, and that took some time. But the transformation is not going to take even that much time. And certainly not the, uh, the germination time for a seed in the earth. Paul then affirms this is the case. He says a moment, then he says the twinkling Repay, that's a Greek noun that has to do with a sudden motion, the twinkling of an eye, that's the Greek word ophthalmos, actually the eye, so a flash of light off the eye, that's the speed, uh, a moment, atomos, an atom, an indivisible amount of time, a twinkling off an eye, the light glancing off an eye, so the idea here is I think you can get the idea, this is serious speed, in other words, it's going to be so fast, you won't even realize it occurred. So when is it going to take place, Paul? Well, he says this, at the last trumpet. And that's important, right? I mean, it's, it's nice to know when that's going to occur, and Paul just gives us that time period. He gives us a time stamp. So resurrection triumph, principle number four, this transformation will occur at a trumpet call. So it's going to be super fast, faster than you can even imagine way faster even than Adam being formed from earth, certainly faster than a seed 
uh, coming out of the ground. It's going to be, not everybody's going to die before they're transformed, and everybody has to be transformed. So Paul gives some very important principles for us to know. Now, trumpets, if we think about them, are used for all kinds of things in the Old Testament, and we won't go through all of those. We could spend weeks just doing that. Just to say that when you read this, don't automatically assume this is the last trumpet forever. Because we understand as we read through future in the New Testament, it isn't. So it's not the last trumpet forever because Scripture doesn't express it that way. We know there will be at least seven more trumpets during the tribulation period, right? If you were with us during a Revelation study, you know that the judgments come at a trumpet blast. And so this isn't the last trumpet forever. So when you see the word last, it is the Greek adjective eschatos. And you understand that word where we get our word eschatology. It's that study of the last things. And this trumpet is marking the last of the things as we know them. So in other words, the last among the events on earth and the coming of the new kingdom. It's the trumpet that obviously ends the struggle with death for the believer. Uh, It certainly seems to be the trumpet that ends the church age, which we'll just look at just briefly. So don't think last trumpet ever. That's not how scripture expresses it. It is of the last. Now, just as a footnote, trumpets in the Old Testament were frequently used in times of festivity, in times of triumph. And so we see that often. Uh, Both of those ideas certainly are in play here. That is a time of uh, festivity. It's certainly a time of triumph. Sometimes trumpets were used to assemble the people before God. Exodus 19, certainly, and Moses on the mountain, assembling the people for the reading of the Ten Commandments. The trumpet is blasted, and the people come. And so we see that, and that certainly is in play, I think, here. And we have uh, the trumpet or the shofar used in summoning God's people to the feasts to be held before him. And I think that idea is in play here with Paul as well. Um, Rosh Hashanah, perhaps, there, uh, or the Feast of Trumpets that started the new year for Israel, uh, usually in early autumn. That was a, one that was started by trumpets. And so there's many examples of that kind of thing. And, and this is one of, Rosh Hashanah is one of the three feasts that hasn't been fulfilled by Jesus yet. And there are some who believe, and I am one of them, that the remaining feast days will be fulfilled in the coming resurrection and the tribulation and the millennial reign of Christ. For example, if you think about the feasts already that have been fulfilled, think about the Passover, and you think about the redemption, the sacrifice, the death of Messiah. So the Passover initially in Egypt, fulfilled by the Messiah, by his own words, that it was fulfilled there, that he was the Passover lamb. And so we see that feast that is, it was established in Israel, fulfilled in Messiah, uh, unleavened bread, and we see the burial of the Messiah and, and no decay and all that kind of thing that was part of the unleavened bread, feast of unleavened, unleavened bread. We see the first fruits. It represents uh, the Savior as the first of the harvest and, of course, the giving of the Holy Spirit and all that uh, celebrated uh, and fulfilled. We see uh, Feast of Weeks and Pentecost and, and all of those things perhaps fulfilling that uh, feast. But there are three that still haven't been fulfilled. And so Rosh Hashanah is one of those. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is one of those that has not been fulfilled. And, and the Feast of Tabernacles has not been fulfilled. So given to Israel in the Old Testament, we see some of them fulfilled already when Christ came. And I think that it's very likely that Christ is going to fulfill these others. He's not going to randomly do something out there that doesn't fulfill some feast day, something that was, uh, I think, part of uh, his shadowing in the Old Testament. So I think it's certainly possible as we think about this trumpet, it's going to include uh, times of festivity and times of triumph, uh, those ideas in play. It's assembling. It certainly is in play there. I think that um, summoning for the feasts is certainly in play. Which feast? That's all up in the air, uh, perhaps. It is Rosh Hashanah, which would be uh, sometime in the autumn. And when you think about, and you're probably thinking, well, no man knows the day or the hour. How many thought that when I said that? No man knows the day or the hour. Yeah. 
of course. And understand that when the feast days came in Israel, and if you've studied this, you know this, that the beginning of the feast day begins with the new moon, always. And so the priest would always say, because it's impossible to know when you'll first sight the new moon, they would say, no man knows the day or the hour when the feast day will begin. They have to sight the new moon, and then the feast day would begin. And so Christ, when Christ recites that and says, no man knows the day or the hour, he's simply saying what the priests have always said at the beginning of the feast day. So we, we don't know when that day will occur. It's not that we have no clue that it's going to occur. It's not that we can't see a pattern in the Old Testament and the New Testament of fulfilling of the feast days. We can certainly see those things. And then as we put those things together, we realize it's very likely that one of these feast days will be fulfilled in the catching away of the church. And so all these things are in play as you think about trumpets. So don't think about the last trumpet ever. That's not what the scripture is talking about. We have this idea then that there are just a couple of examples, and there are several others where God uses trumpets to assemble his people before himself. But the idea here is from Paul that someday all that are in the graves are going to hear the trumpet, and they're going to come out, and they're going to join those who are going to be transformed on the way up in the resurrection. And because there's no judgment here associated with the trumpet and the resurrection, it appears to be a different resurrection or transformation and a different appearing of Christ than the passages that speak of Christ coming down to Jerusalem. And it's very important to differentiate between these two because here's where the trouble becomes, that comes in, okay? People want to roll all these things together and make just one returning of Christ, one glorious appearing of Christ. And that doesn't appear to be the case as we look at the passages of Scripture and how they're fulfilled in the Old Testament and how they make their way into the New Testament. So this trumpet and this transformation in the twinkling of an eye at this just indivisible moment of time doesn't appear to be the same return of Christ that we see when he comes in his glorious appearing. In, in fact, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, and we'll give you some of those. And listen to the language as opposed to what we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 52, and 53. So Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. So, a coming where everybody sees him, a coming where those who pierced him, in other words, those who crucified him, and those who persecute his believers now will see him and mourn, so it is to be. Amen. Matthew 24, 15, another place. And look, look if you would, to Matthew 24. I want you to read this because I think it's helpful. Just hold your place here. Look at Matthew 24. We've got a few minutes. Matthew 24, 26. Look there in your copy of God's word. Matthew 24, 15, just to set the stage, speaks of the tribulation time on earth. And then when you get to this Matthew 24, 26, it talks about this coming of Christ, this glorious appearing of Christ. So the tribulation time, and you can read that on your own, starting in verse 15. And then you get to Matthew 24, 26. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he's in the inner room, do not believe them. So Jesus has caught away the church. He isn't on earth during this time, but when he comes, it'll be obvious. Okay, so he's just saying, look, people say he's here, people say he's there, don't go running out. Okay, verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So he's coming at the end of this awful time on earth, and we've studied this before, so we won't go into it, uh, the tribulation period again, but this awful time on earth where the corpses are gathered, the vultures are everywhere, and he's coming. Okay, there's been a lot of death, there's been a lot of judgment, and now he's coming in his glorious appearing. Now look at verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So the tribulation's occurring and then there's these, these signs in the heavens. We've read through this in Revelation. We understand how this occurs and when this occurs, okay? And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will, will be shaken, verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then catch this. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. So there's another trumpet. Okay? He's going to send forth his angels. Now what's going to happen? So the trumpet's described as a great trumpet. It, it will gather people to God as well. And this may be the fulfillment of the day of atonement as Jesus will save Israel from their imminent destruction from the Antichrist. That could be a fulfillment of that day. It, it's, it's up in the air, of course, but it certainly seems to fit. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. So Jesus is going to gather all of his elect at this great trumpet. So those who have been transformed already and are with him from the previous trumpet blast at the end of the church age and the elect who are among those still alive on the end, at the end of the tribulation, those are elect as well. And the elect of the Old Testament whose bodies are still in the grave, like we studied before, they're waiting for their glorified body. And the elect who were martyred during the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, who sat at the, at the base of his throne and say, how long, O Lord, do we have to wait? So he's just going to blast this final trumpet, and he's gathered his elect from all the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. So they're all part of the first resurrection. And then we see again this glorious appearing of Christ. Look at Matthew 25, 31. So all this whole section, very interesting reading. You would love that to read it on your own. Uh, but we'll just highlight these, these places so that you can see some differences here. So we don't see anything of that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, 53. Nothing of the judgment, nothing of the, of the angels coming, nothing of the mourning, nothing of, none, of, none of that. We don't see that in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following. No mourning, no judgment, nothing. We see a catching away, we see a focus on believers, a removal of them from the earth, and I'll have another passage here that helps confirm that in your mind. But look at Matthew 25, 31. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so the glorious appearing of Christ, just another way to say that, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So we differentiate then between that passage, which obviously includes judgment, which includes Christ coming and sitting on his throne, which you don't see any of that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, uh, 15, 51, 52, 53. We don't see any of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4, verse 13 and following. What we do see is that catching away of the church, we see a focus on believers, we see a transformation, a trumpet call, we see all those kinds of things, and the church being caught away. So on the one hand, you have Paul talking about this first part of this first resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And then again in John 14, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and comforting them, and he says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Where is that? Where he's prepared a place for us, you see? And so, again, this doesn't appear to be the glorious return of Christ. This is Jesus receiving those from the church age. This appears to be Jesus catching away those that are his, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This, this appears to be that catching away that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the beginning of the wrapping up of all things, certainly the end of death for those who are redeemed, certainly the end of the church age. Jesus lived and died, buried and raised. The gospel went out. His bodily resurrection was everything. And everything is wrapped up in that, see. 
And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, catch this, beloved, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from God to the idols to serve the living God and catch this, catch this, beloved. What does it say? And wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, and this very important differentiation in these last six or seven ver- uh, words. What's it say? Who rescues us from what? What's it say? Sure. Does that sound like, does that sound like that's pre-tribulation time? What is tribulation? If it's defined as anything, what is it defined as? Wrath. Even in the wrath of God during the tribulation, he's not willing that any perish, and many come to faith. But when we're talking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following, when we're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50, 51, 52, 53, we're talking about a completely different time, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, a completely different time, because every other time has to do with wrath. It has to do with mourning. It has to do with weeping. This all has to do with victory and joy, and celebration, and all of that, you see? Now, I'll admit, it's, it's a close differentiation, isn't it? I mean, you have to read it carefully. What do these passages, these three, have in common? And what do the rest of them have in common? So is it the catching of the way of the church with these three passages? 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, 53, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3? It sounds like it, because it certainly doesn't sound like and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that's Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. See? And so these passages, like these ones I just named, they all seem to cover the same event, the beginning of the first resurrection, the catching away of the church, the end of death for the believer, the transformation for the believer, this inheriting the kingdom for the believer, all that kind of thing. They cover... Both sides of the question. If you're dead, don't worry. You're going to come out of the grave with a transformed body. And if you're alive, you just get changed on the way up. And both changes are instantaneous. But you don't get to beat the one that's in the grave already. They're going to come before you. So Paul says, the dead will be raised imperishable. You can flip back over if you would. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we, those still alive at Paul's audience, then and now, will be changed. Okay? So that it goes together very well. The dead are going to be raised imperishable. And we, Paul says, I'm alive now. If it happens now, it'll be me. For those who are alive at this day, those people, those believers will be changed. So Paul says, let me let you in on a secret never revealed before. A whole generation of believers who will still be alive at the time of the resurrection in their natural bodies will be taken up in an instant and transformed into a glorified body without ever dying. And that's a pretty sweet surprise for those who are Christ. Because up until now, they're thinking, okay, I'm going into the grave, and out of the grave, you know, after death, I'm going to be transformed. And that's great hope, isn't it? Because death is part of our life, and we understand that's likely the end of most of us. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, there's a whole generation that won't see death. And so Paul begins to sum up his instruction. So let's break down, really, some of it into basic parts. What's going to happen in the shortest imaginable amount of time? So Paul says, for this perishable must put on imperishable, And this mortal must put on immortality. So, perishable, parthos, that's which is defiled, 
Paul's idea here for the believers to think of their, their life now. It's clothed in a filthy set of clothes. That's the idea. It's the adjective, perishable. Something, a set of clothes you can never take off yourself. It's not the real you, but it's what you're clothed in. The perishable must put on the imperishable. So Paul's talking about this bodily resurrection from the beginning of this section. He's talking about the body now, and all that is corrupted, will be transformed from death or from life, because death just shows us an accelerated form of what's going on in life. You catch that? Death just shows us in an accelerated form what's already going on in the life right now. And you are clothed with that, and so am I. And there's no way for us to escape it. It is not the real you. The real you is inside. But you're clothed with this perishable. So the perishable must put on the imperishable. Atharsia. No longer able to decay. The transformed suit around the real you will be absolutely pure. No possibility of corruption. In the shortest amount of time, whether you're in the grave already or you're still alive, you're going to be transformed and your perishable in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, is going to be transformed into this new set, the imperishable. And then he says, this mortal, natos, and it's a noun really supplied for this adjective, it's the word body. The mortal means subject or liable to death or mortal. So it just defines you in a different way. You're clothed with corruptibility, constantly decaying. You're clothed with, again, that Greek adjective, thetos. You're clothed with this, this suit that's subject to death. Uh, the, the verb thanesco just means to die. So it's a derivative of that. So just as a footnote, even the moral, uh, mortality and, and this perishable, which is the description of our clothing, can obey the real you. I mean, if you think about it, that's not you. Your identity is not the clothing you're clothed with, this tent, this body, okay? So... Romans 6.12 says this, therefore do not let sin reign in your, here's the same word, mortal body, okay, so that you obey its lust. So it's used of the body where it's called mortal, not simply because it's liable to death, but because it's the organ in and through which death carries out its death-producing activity. So not only is it liable for death, through the flesh you carry out all those death-producing things that would cause death if you were under judgment, right? I mean, you, you lie, you, you cheat, you, whatever it is that you do, and all those things produce death, right? So but Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So the real you, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, has some say, okay? Because if Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, he's implying that maybe it is, but it doesn't have to be, okay? So Paul says, you're going to bring this flesh into subjection. So I don't want to tell you that, you know, you're perishable and you're mortal, so that gives you an excuse to do the things that perishable and mortal people do. You, that's not you. It doesn't define you. It's just who you're clothed in, and it prohibits your entrance to heaven until you're transformed, see? And then Romans 8, 11 says, uses the word again, tells us this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your, what? Mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's the use of mortal, and it places the emphasis on the liability of death, and then the impartation of life at the time of the rapture. Right? Christ is going to give you life. He's going to take away this suit that you're in you can't shed, the one that's corruptible, the one that's mortal, and he's going to give you in a moment, an indivisible amount of time, whether you're in the grave or alive, at that generation that's there at that time, when this beginning of this first resurrection occurs, you will be transformed in a second, and you're going to lose that suit that's corruptible, and you're going to lose that suit that's mortal, and you're going to get one that's incorruptible and immortal. And that's what he says next. He says this. 
And this mortal must put on immortality. So, no more liability to death, to death just like we saw in Romans 8, 11. And not only that, and next week we're going to see that death itself is going to die. So, not only are you going to be stripped of this body of death, death is going to be put to death. And so it's a marvelous time, beloved, and you look for this and catch, catch this. You know, he brings out something of the nature of the, of the change, really singling out the cessation of the corruption and liability of bodily decay and morality, uh, mortality, which is the liability of death. He singles those things out. He just says this, the, both of those things are gone. They're totally incompatible with the life in the hereafter and they will be transformed into an indivisible, in, in an indivisible moment, you'll be transformed. So resurrection tri uh, triumph principle number five, the transformation is like clothing, the real you with the right suit. The suit is not you. The suit is just this body that resembles Adam's body. But Christ has given you new life and someday he'll give you a body that resembles his body. And just like Adam was the, uh, was the head of the human race and everybody who followed Adam looks like him, so that those who follow Christ, everyone who follows Christ will eventually look like him. You see? Now we bear the image of the earthly. Now we wear the clothing of the mortal and corruption. But neither will be true after the moment of time on that day. And the transformation for you, if you're redeemed, is not dependent on anything that you do. This is Christ's power on display for you. And that is a marvelous thought. And it's as sure for you as you're sitting here today. If there is a fleshly body, so there will be one. A spiritual body, you see. And here's the thing, as opposed to Eisenhower and Churchill, you know this in advance. The great war has already been fought. And the general of that war won all of the battles. And everything is set and the outcome is sure. So the question is, how will that change the way you interact with this life and the word of God today? If for sure you're going to be changed and for sure you'll be like Christ and for sure you'll be with him, how will that impact how you, how you behave in relation to the word of God and what it says now? It's not like maybe you're going to show up there and there's another letter that Paul wrote that said if it doesn't work out, then you're on your own and don't, you know, whatever happens, happens. Listen, it's for sure. So how's that going to, how's that going to interact with your life and the word of God? And here's the thing. How will it interact with your anxiety level and your priorities? If this is a for sure issue. And so I guess your application here, the Holy Spirit can make it as he sees fit. Well, beloved, this is, this is good news. Paul says, I've got a mystery you didn't know before. Now, you know it because you've heard it many times because you're a part of the New Testament church. But this group of believers, they're like, what's going on? We could be alive when Christ comes? That's fantastic. And it's still fantastic, isn't it? So what kind of people should we be if we know that's the case? May the Holy Spirit apply that to you as he sees fit. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for our time in your word. We give you just a few verses that are left, but these are so packed full of so many exciting things. We're so grateful that we are allowed to look at them, that you've given them to us in advance. You've told us what the outcome is, all based because Christ rose. Bodily resurrected from the grave is everything. It's our power over sin, release from the penalty. It's everything about how history uh, will wrap up and the future will conclude. 
about our secure home and our, our inheritance that Christ brings into subjection. Lord, all these things are all wrapped up in Christ's resurrection. And because he was raised, so shall we. Christ the first fruits, and then those who are Christ set as appearing. What an exciting thing to think about. And so, Father, help us to live differently. Whatever our level of anxiety might be in this life, whatever we worry about, help our understanding of who we are in, in your Son and the secure nature of our resurrection and the possibility of it happening so soon and the transformation that will occur and leaving behind all these failings that we have and all this, all the remorse and all the things connected to the flesh and its appetites all stripped away, that mortality put on immortality and that corruption put on incorruption. So grateful for that, Father. Help us to lift our spirits. Help us to be the kind of people we need to be. Help us to sh share this good news, which is the good news of the entire created cosmos. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We give you praise today. Thank you for the ministry that we had yesterday amongst uh, the, the people in our neighborhood, the tracts that went out, the gospel that was given. Lord, I pray that you'll help that to find rich purchase and soil that's prepared for uh, hearing this good news. And help us to be people of your name, clearly presenting the gospel as you give us opportunity, knowing what your word says and sharing it, being encouraged by what your word says and living it, letting these things that we know, the security that we have in Christ, uh, put, to, put aside our, our anxiety and our fear. And we give you this uh, praise because you're worthy. We look forward to your son's return and it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said.